If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Colossians. And we'll just be tackling uh, two fairly brief verses today, verses 16 and 17. These are the, the rightful conclusions to a passage from 8 or 9, depending on where you want to break it, through 15. And uh, we will only be looking at these today as we enter into um, the proclamation of the word through the Lord's Supper. And again, we will be in verses 16 and 17. Ever since William Carey, who was the father of modern missions, began to take Christianity to foreign shores, this was the major push in modern times to evangelize the entire world. It kind of happened by happenstance before then. As people traveled, they would take the word with them. But he really began the the idea that as Christians, it is our duty to move to foreign countries, to take the gospel where it has not been named before. That was a, a tremendously important movement in the church, and it has seen fruit. Um, we, we know that it has seen fruit in places like China and in places like India, in places like Africa, where they hadn't heard the word before. While missionaries then, after William Carey, started to go overseas, what we found then is that they were not just taking with them the gospel, but they were taking with them their culture. So you can go to places in Africa and you can go to places in India that, that don't look anything like Bay City, Michigan. They don't look anything like Western civilization looks like. And you will find Africans who, while wearing traditional African robes throughout the rest of the week on Sundays, will put on suits and they will go to nice white steepled buildings, um, although there isn't another white steepled buildings for, for miles. And they will sing traditional hymns and they will read out of the King James version of the Bible instead of a Bible necessarily in their own dialect because what happens is as Western missionaries went out, they didn't just take the gospel, but the gospel became so intertwined with their culture that they really didn't know how to separate them out. Now, as Southern Baptists, as we send missionaries out, we do as good of a job as we can to try and make sure that our missionaries understand the separation between what the gospel is and what your culture says it is. But this is, it's tough. It's really tough. You can see the difficulty of this, even in our political climate. So many people confuse the gospel of God and the importance of the gospel with what America is. There is vast confusion there. And so we... We should understand that there would be even more confusion in New Testament times surrounding Judaism and the culture and the customs that were built into what Judaism was, specifically the law. There's a lot of confusion, and you see this throughout the early church when it comes to how to deal with the law and new Christians. So we like to think, I think at times, that when Jesus gave the Great Commission in the end of Matthew, that that church was done sort of fully formed, that all of the theology was sort of baked into them at that time. And as they went out, everything prospered as it should have. But that really wasn't the case. Theology that we have in the New Testament didn't come down full in its full descriptive state as we have it here. But instead, we find the new church wrestling with these things. We find in Acts the church wrestling with these things. Acts begins with a gospel. Even as Jesus tells them, you will proclaim it to the ends of the earth. It begins with a gospel proclaimed only to Jews. Only to Jews. It isn't until the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th chapters of Acts that we finally begin to see this movement take place. God has to not send a word to Peter, but he's got to give him an entire vision. It takes up two chapters. That vision is repeated twice. 
at length in the book of Acts to get the point to Peter and to the rest of the people who are reading that book that the Gentiles are fully fledged heirs in Christ. It is difficult. The New Testament church worked very, very hard to try and figure out how do, we, how do we deal with the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament and the customs of the Old Testament now that we have this sort of new creation. We are not past this yet. Just down the road, there is a Seventh-day Adventist church that completely misunderstand what the Sabbath is and who Jesus Christ is, primarily because they misunderstand what the Old Testament is saying. It, it, we don't even have to go to... Seventh-day Adventist churches, we could say even within our own Southern Baptist churches, there is a variety of ways in which people understand the Sabbath itself, what it means, what we're supposed to do with it, what we can and can't do on it, things like that. Mix in with a variety of ways of looking at the law, and we have a host of difficulties. Certainly these difficulties would have been present in any of the churches that Paul set up because as the church spread, the church spread to Greco-Roman cities where there were present Jews. And Christianity was clearly somehow connected to Judaism. The scriptures, when they opened to read the scriptures, when Paul was a missionary and he would go out and he would open a scroll to read scriptures, he was not reading from himself. He didn't say, now I've got with me a copy of my letter to the Romans. If you would open that up, we'll, we'll read what I wrote. He doesn't say that, right? He says, you'll open the scroll of Isaiah. You'll you open the scroll of Joshua. So th there was an, an inherent Jewishness to everything that Christianity would do. And so Jews would know about this. And there was confusion. There was sin. There was wrongness. But there was also just pure confusion as to how Christians ought to handle themselves in a Jewish context. That is why we have verses 16 and 17 today. I don't think, again, I don't think the book of Colossians is written primarily because Paul is trying to counter a heresy that's already being built up in Colossae. I think that Paul knows very well that these problems are out there. There are syncretistic practices by Christians in dealing with the Greek culture that he doesn't want them to go over there, those vain philosophies that we've talked about. He doesn't want his people pulled that way, but neither does he want his people pulled into Judaism because Judaism is not Christianity. So he gives us this warning. If you'll read with me in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This particular passage, again, is the, the end. It is the purpose by which Paul has written. Therefore, he says, in light of the fact that you have been circumcised with a circumcision without hands and have been baptized into Christ, the fact that Christ has ended both your obligation to God, the debt that you owed to him, and the enemies that you had, he has put an end to all of it. Therefore, you have no reason to get suckered back into Judaism. It's not what you need to do. And he says, in verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. It's kind of a weird way to put it. How do you stop someone from passing judgment on you? You can't, really. I'm judging all of you right now, and there's nothing you can do about it, okay? Some of you are sleeping, and mm, judgment. So there's nothing that you can do about any of that. But what you can do, and I think this is what Paul's point is, is this should not worry you, okay? You can't stop people from passing judgment on you, but he says, you should shrug it off. Who cares? 
They're going to tell you, you need to follow these rituals. You need to do these things. And Paul's idea is, listen, why do you care? Christ has died. You've been baptized into Christ. You are with him. You are united with him. There's no reason for you to turn back to Judaism. Don't let them pass judgment on you. And he talks about food and drink in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Briefly, let us discuss what these things are. And let us see how these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. We talk about the shadow of the things to come, that the substance belongs to Christ. The, the picture that you should get on something like that is, imagine that you are facing west as the sun is setting, and somebody is walking towards you, and because they're right next to the sun, you can't see who they are. And, and even, even as they're walking toward you, it's so blinding, the sun, is that you have to keep your head down. And, and what you see then coming at you as you look down is just the outline of a shadow. And what you can tell from that shadow it's a lot, actually. You can probably tell whether the thing that's walking at you is a human or a dog or an elephant. Maybe some of you can't. Maybe some of you would be hard to tell from your shadows. Uh, who knows? But, but for the most part, you can kind of tell from the outline what's coming at you, okay? But what you couldn't make out were the particulars. It is unlikely that any of you, no matter how Sherlock Holmesian you might want to be, could figure out from the shadow exactly who was walking at you. You might be able to figure out from the hair, maybe, that you would have a guess that they were a woman or a man, but frankly, you still wouldn't know. It is not until you look up and see the actual body of the person that you know truly who that person was. And, and what Paul is saying is that these, these Old Testament festivals and rituals and, and the laws concerning food and other things were, were simply shadows. They, they were the outline of what was going to eventually be true in Christ now, I, I have a friend back in, in Louisville, and uh, I, I taught a class once on um, Scripture, foundations of Scripture, what Scripture is, how it got passed down to us, translations, difficulties with texts, and, and all of that. And in that class, I did nothing um, for his own sake. He, he read the King James Bible all the time. That was the only Bible that he read. He didn't think that that was what everyone should read, but that was all he read. And so I went out of my way to pick on him nonstop about that. And so when I left... Louisville, he gave me a huge old King James Bible, and he said, for your edification, brother, take this and read. And so um, I, I, I always laugh then because every once in a while I come back and I, I dog the KJV, but then the KJV does something right, and it always makes me laugh. And this passage here, in verse 17, the ESV gets wrong. It's just not a great translation. It's not that there aren't English translations that aren't good out there. And, and the ESV is actually good for part of it but you're going to see that it loses something. The King James Version says something along the lines of, but the body of Christ, okay? So when he says, these are a substance, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, you can see where they get that. The actual wording is something along the lines of, but the body of Christ, okay? It's not the shadow, but it's the body of Christ. And what they're getting at is they're interpreting the metaphor for you, right? It's no longer a person who's walking at you, but they're saying these were the shadowy things in the Old Testament, but the reality is Jesus. Okay, well, that's, that's helpful, but as you've seen through the chapter, this idea of body comes up quite a bit, and it's not an insignificant part of the chapter. So to think that body here simply means that it's the actual reality of the stuff sort of misses the point, it should read something along the lines of, these are a shadow of the things to come, the body of Christ. What are the things to come? The things to come was the body of Christ. 
that was what was to come. And so this is what we are going to say about these verses today. First, the Old Testament distinctions are fulfilled in the body of Christ. The Old Testament distinctions are fulfilled in the body of Christ. If you look back in Scripture and you look at festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, a lot of these things were simply there, and even the food regulations were simply there to make distinct the people of God. Now, the food regulations are incredibly difficult for us to kind of get our minds around. Some people claim that it's solely for health, okay? So if you go back, they would say things like, well, you know, the Old Testament regulations are really just there to be healthy because pigs can get dirty and filthy and the meat could be, if you're not careful on how you cook it, and same with shrimp. But this, to me, is just unbelievably wrong. I mean, have you read the Old Testament and how detailed it is when it comes to things like the temple? You don't think that God could have said, cook it till it's cooked, right? It's very simple. He could have said, you go, you get some shrimp. You got like three hours to cook those babies. You put them in water, you cook them till they're red, you take the feet off of them and you eat them, okay? Makes a little cocktail sauce is awesome. So, but he doesn't say that. It's very easy. He could have easily explained how to handle this stuff with health in mind, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, they're flat out gone. No shellfish, no pork. And here I will avoid all of the fun quotations that I could, jokes that I could make about bacon wrap shrimp, but we will put that on the side. <laughs> Instead, what he's saying is this is what makes them distinct. This is what sets them aside. It's clear that, that these foods were popular all around them. You, you have parables, uh, not parables, you have stories where Jesus goes into foreign lands and he comes upon herds of pigs. The prodigal son leaves and he has to go feed herds of pigs. They were all around them. It was a way to make Israel distinct. Another place where it's very easy to see that this makes Israel distinct is actually in the New Testament when we have people struggling trying to figure out how to work this out. There's a very famous incident that happens in Antioch. Paul writes about this in Galatians. And he's trying to convince the Galatians that any movement back to the law, any movement back to circumcision will automatically disqualify them from the benefits of Christ. And in doing so, he says this in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that, and Cephas there is just Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We don't know all of why Peter acted the way he acted. We don't know if they were eating unkosher foods there and he was simply eating a kosher variety of food and simply sitting at the table with them or if he was diving into the full non-kosher regimen that the Greeks would have been putting before him. We don't know what he was eating, but we do know this, that when certain people showed up, Peter withdrew even from eating with them. For fear of the circumcision party, probably, in my view, for fear that they would say, Peter, you're nothing but a Gentile. You are nothing but one who is outside the people of God. And Paul says, listen, you can't pull back like that. You are making the Gentiles secondhand citizens. You are making yourself distinct from them. See, meals back then are not like meals are for us now. We eat in restaurants all the time. We eat next to strangers all the time. But in 
ancient days, when you ate with somebody, you were giving fellowship with them. You were standing in accordance with them. It was incredibly important. And so if Peter was eating with Gentiles, that is him giving credence to their ability to sit with him. He's saying, you are equal with me. You are here with me. You belong with me. You see, the food laws were not really about what you can and can't eat, but about who you can and can't eat with. And the purpose of the food laws was saying, you cannot eat with people who eat pork. You cannot eat with people who eat shrimp. It was a way to distinguish yourself from others. That distinction now is made in the body of Christ. Again, this, this entire sort of passage is really poignant when we consider what we are about to do today. Literally, eat the body of Christ. We will take the body of Christ in. What distinguishes Christians from everybody else? It is not just what we confess. It's that we gather. And you can see why it isn't just the substance belongs to Christ. Because yes, the substance belongs to Christ. He has come and fulfilled all of the Old Testament laws and all of the Old Testament regulations. If not for him, we would need to enter into the legal covenant and keep it in order to be right with God. But because he has finished it, it has found its completion in him, we no longer need to do that. It is fulfilled in him. Those things were shadows of the distinction that we were supposed to have in Christ. But it's not just in Christ, it's in the body of Christ. What makes you distinct, what sets you apart as a people, is not just your confession of Jesus, it's your gathering together with Jesus. You are going to eat collectively of the body of Christ. That is a sign for Paul of nothing more than, uh, of a lot more, but of at the very minimum, your unity with Christ and your unity with one another. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tears the Corinthians apart, not because they were sinful and eating of the bread. My goodness, you have to be sinful and eat of the bread. You are never going to be perfect enough to come and eat of that bread. That bread is a means of grace. It's a means to remind you that Christ died for you. It is not meant for you to sort of worry about whether you are perfect enough to eat or worthy to eat. You are never going to be worthy to eat. What he wanted them to make sure that they were being careful about is whether they were unified as a body. You come together as a body to eat the bread. That is what makes you distinct now. It isn't the Old Testament regulations. What makes you distinct is what you eat, and what you eat is the body of Christ in communion. Secondly, Old Testament temple worship is fulfilled in the body of Christ. These three items, especially at the end of verse 16, festival, new moon, and Sabbath, is not three, doesn't appear anyway, to be three random things that Paul simply picked out and said, hey, we can use these. There's a neat order to them. Festivals are things that typically happen on a yearly basis. New moons typically happen on a monthly basis so much so that a lot of translations will even call this new months instead of new moons, although it should be new moons. And then, frankly, the Sabbath then occurs weekly. So we have yearly, monthly, weekly. So there's a nice order to it. It kind of flows, Okay. But this same order comes up in several different places. It comes up in Hosea 2.11, but most importantly for us in Ezekiel 45. And I'm going to read from Ezekiel 45, verses 13 through 17. This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each homer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of barley. 
And as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, which is helpful because we measure a lot of things in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core, like the Homer, contains ten baths, and one sheep from every flock of two hundred from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord. All, and here's the, the important parts are coming up, all the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. You bring the things that are required of you, the Sabbaths, the new moons and the festivals, the same grouping, you bring them and you provide for the prince so that he can make atonement for you. This is both a worship offering and an atonement offering. And again, this is not new for us. We've talked about this. We are the temple of God. When you come together as living stones being built up by God, the body of Christ is where the Spirit dwells. We are now the body of Christ. The Spirit dwells within us. Collectively, we are the temple of God. When you come to worship, you come together. Now, certainly, you come together to worship here, now. You will leave and you will worship on your own, hopefully throughout the week. It's not something that we just do on Sunday mornings. But there is something special about it on Sunday mornings because this is the morning that we gather together to do it. There's two things that are going on in these festivals. A lot of the festivals were set up to simply remember what God had done. Now, sometimes they were to simply rejoice in the Lord, but sometimes festivals were set up to remember what God has done. Remember, the Passover was set up to remember that the Lord passed over the children of Israel on the 10th plague, right? It's set up as a memory. He doesn't repeat that plague every year, but it's set up as a remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Well, what do we have this morning? We have taken the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It is both an act of remembrance, that we remember what he has done. This do, it says right there in front of the table, this do in remembrance of me. We are taking it in as a remembrance. But a remembrance of what? Notice in all the language in Ezekiel what these things were done for. They were done for atonement. This do in remembrance of me and the atonement that Christ has offered All of those new moons, all of the festivals, everything that was done was pointing towards the final and climatic demonstration of God's righteousness, of his justice, and of his atonement in Jesus Christ. So there's no reason for us to worry about going to a temple to worship. When we come here, we take of the body and the blood, we are doing temple worship. You are in the temple of God. It's just the body of Jesus Christ. Last, as an extension of these two things. The Old Testament civil or civic laws are fulfilled in the body of Christ. This is a bit of an extension because it's not tied directly to the law, but I think it flows from this, and I want to tell you how important I think this is. When we interact with people today, most prominently with the very important and topical uh, issue of homosexuality, 
one of the things that people who disagree with where this church stands on homosexual practice, which is the practice of homosexuality, is a sin. It is something that God judges and judges harshly. When they hear us say that, they will immediately say a handful of things about it. Okay? Some of these we can just shrug our shoulders at and say that's just not at all the case. One of them is that the Bible doesn't really condemn like committed homosexual relationships. The relationships that a lot of gay people have today, which is true, are committed in a way that maybe people in the first century wouldn't have been, but that doesn't really hold much water because Paul doesn't even come close. He just kind of condemns the whole lot of them, and so does the Old Testament. The practice of homosexual is roundly condemned both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But one of the passages that we would go to first would be Leviticus. There's a whole bunch of things that people say about the Old Testament and about how we misuse the Old Testament, they say, in going back to Leviticus. Somebody wrote this. One author wrote this. There is, however, a big problem with quoting Leviticus. The problem is that Christians are no longer under the law. We do not live our Christian life by following Old Testament law. The Apostle Paul makes this abundantly clear. It is not something fabricated to win an argument or made up in the 20th century or manufactured to get around something somebody doesn't like. It is clearly stated in the Greek scriptures. And then he goes to quote Paul from Galatians, which shows that he knows neither Galatians nor does he understand the Old Testament. Because that is not what Galatians is arguing. I'll say that very firmly. Galatians is not arguing at all that the Old Testament doesn't apply to you. He's saying something completely distinct. We will get to that at some other time. However, as far as the Old Testament goes today, what does it mean then? Can we use Leviticus? And if we use Leviticus, the other thing that they say is, well, yeah, but do you even hear what Leviticus is saying? Leviticus is calling for stonings. Leviticus is calling for putting to death. Leviticus is calling for burning people. More than that, Leviticus has a whole bunch of rules that you guys just completely ignore. Most of you are ignoring it right now. And again, shock and horror. You are wearing clothing with two different types of fabric in it. And again, if you go back to you know, Leviticus 20, it says, no, no. Some of you have crops that you plant, and you plant in the same field two different seeds. Again, no, no. It says you can't do that. Sinners. Okay? And what they will do is they'll point at these laws and say, you guys are just picking out the laws that you, you like. You're not homosexual, so you pick on homosexual people by picking that law and holding it up. The problem is that people don't understand how the law applies to us now and what it's actually doing. So we've got, thankfully, by God, a very good test case. So we will read from the same portion of Leviticus that condemns homosexual action. We will, we will read from that portion and then see that there is an exact correspondence in the New Testament and look at how the New Testament handles it. Okay? Leviticus 20, verses 10 through 14. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And people will point to that and they'll say, listen, you're not, you don't actually hold to that. First of all, even if you want to condemn homosexuality, you're clearly not killing people, which I think that they would add is a good thing. 
but you're clearly not doing what Leviticus says. And I'm going to argue that we totally are doing what Leviticus says. We're, we're totally doing that. This is what Paul says, okay? So the issues in Leviticus were just flat-out adultery, a man lying with his father's wife. Remember that, a man lying with his father's wife, a man lying with his daughter-in-law, and a man lying with a male. When we go to 1 Corinthians 5, we read the following. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. It is the exact situation from Leviticus. And what does Paul say? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, listen to how solemn this is. He's not, Paul's not playing around here. He's already thrown out the big J word, which is the antithetical word to everything in our culture. He says, I've already passed judgment. The hammer has fallen. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does he do? He says, you kick him out of the body. He's gone. You enact discipline, and you remove him from fellowship. When you remove him from the body, what are you doing? You are, remove, you are unbaptizing him. You are unhooking him from Christ. That's the whole point of excommunication. And if you are unhooked from Christ, what are you doing? That's the second death, eh? Leviticus was light. What Paul is saying is you will excommunicate him. You will cut him off from Christ. And if he is cut off from Christ, then he is due for the second death. But notice the grace that is in Paul. He says we're doing this not so that he will be delivered over to Satan and die in his sin, but so that he might understand and put to death his flesh, that which is sinful in him. He might repent and come back so that he can be saved again. The whole point is that he's not saved now. He's not saved. You see, we make, by being the body, we make those distinctions between those who are in and those who are out. And those who practice continually, without repentance, practice homosexuality and all of the other laws that are wrong. Those who are adulteresses, we do the same thing with them. If you commit adultery and you are unrepentant, the church has the obligation, not the right, not just the right, but the obligation and the duty to make sure that you don't think that you are safe before the Lord to kick you out of the church, to excommunicate you from the church so that you will know that you are standing in judgment of God. It is much better to be hit with a rock than to stand under the wrath of our God. So we are not misapplying scripture when we go to the Old Testament and we say homosexuals in their practice of homosexuality, not themselves, but when they practice, if they do so without repentance, that they are excluded from the kingdom of God. Paul says this over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, after 1 Corinthians 5, he comes back, and in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Sound familiar? Nor men who practice homosexuality. Notice practice there. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That was you. This list that defines who you are. You're a bunch of idolaters. But, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There is always held out, as long as you have breath, forgiveness in repentance. There is forgiveness and mercy being held out for you. There is a sense in which the Old Testament was much harsher than the New Testament, but it's not in the avenue of justice. It's in the avenue of mercy. The New Testament offers mercy and, and grace and provision to people. If there is repentance, there is incorporation back in. The New Testament does not require you to be perfect. It requires you to be repentant. So we do uphold the laws of the Old Testament in all that we say and do. And again, specifically, as we come to this body of Christ and to this blood of Christ, we are taking in a matter of of our proclamation that we, we proclaim that you need this. You need this. As much as you needed Christ to die on the cross, you need this to remind yourselves of what Christ has done. To remind yourself of his atonement. To remind yourself of who you are. To remind yourself that God is providing for you continually and always, not just in physical provision of bread and wine, but also in spiritual provision of power and strength. God is giving all of this to you. It is defining who you are. It is defining how you ought to live. It is defining what is right and what is wrong for you. It is all of the Old Testament laws rolled into one thing, taking in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go to the Old Testament anymore. You have Christ. You have his body. You have his blood. You have his covenant. You are covered in him and you exist in him so as we come to the table this morning, let us take in joy, knowing that it is not by our strength, it is not by our might that we stand before God, but we stand before God because he has provided for us. His son has given himself for us so that we might be cleansed, we might be strengthened, we might be made new again. That goes for everybody. Repent today and be saved in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing before you. There is nothing that we bring to be saved by. We do not need to be circumcised. We don't need to perform outward rites in order to be saved. Even our baptism, Father, is a demonstration of that which is already true. It is a proclamation of what is already true, that we are already united to you. Let us be mindful of that, Father. There has been one given to us. Salvation has been provided to us. Let us not think that we can add anything to it. Let us run, Father, to you, to the provision that you have provided for us. Let us be reminded this day of the provision of Jesus Christ in his broken body and his spilled blood. It is in his name we pray. Amen.